Hi, Dave Deep. Uh, welcome to the Big Turtle Podcast. We are so happy to have you here today. Um, Dave Deep is currently in uh, in Tamil Nadu, and he has been affiliated to uh, the Oroville, the larger organization now for a long time, and he's based at the ashram in Pondicherry, which is uh, uh, an autonomous unit. And um, today we're going to talk about uh, Dave Deep's work at uh, in Pondicherry, and we're going to talk about some of his. Uh, academic uh, adventures with um, um, with the work of Sri Aurobindo and uh, Hindu philosophy and how it relates to uh, some certain threads, similar threads, the parallels in Chinese uh, philosophy and Taoism and various thinkers and how they have uh, uh, related to their relationship with uh, Sri Aurobindo and uh, and his philosophy. So, Devdeep, would you like to tell us about uh, your uh, relationship and your work in Pondicherry and with the larger umbrella organization? So, good morning, Vikram. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, so I live in Pondicherry uh, at the Sri Aurobindo Ashram. And um, so the ashram is the organization that grew around Sri Aurobindo when he moved to Pondicherry. So as you would know, Sri Aurobindo was associated with the freedom movement. He was actively involved in the early part of the 20th century in Bengal. And then he came to Pondicherry in 1910. And with him, people started to gather, uh, the people started to gather around him. And uh, some years later, he was joined by uh, his spiritual associate, Mira Alfasa, whom we refer to as the mother. And the ashram was sort of uh, founded, or as he likes to put it, founded itself in 1926. And uh, so the ashram is basically the home of the disciples and those who are uh, committed to the practice, who aspire to practice the integral yoga of Sri and the mother. And um, um, even after Shrabindo left his body in 1950, the mother continued his work uh, until she left her body in 1973. And before she, before, uh, uh, she passed away, uh, she founded the international township of Oroville, which is uh, you know, widely known uh, in 1968. And uh, Oroville is 10 to 15 kilometers from Pondicherry. And it's envisioned as... Uh, international township where people from all over the world can come together in the hope of having a living human unity. So um, yes, I, I grew up at the ashram. So I went to the school. The ashram has a school right, right from kindergarten to college. And uh, I, I came here at the age of eight. My family has been associated with Shurabindo for uh, generations. So I came here at the age of eight. I studied here. And then when I finished uh, in 2004, I decided to continue uh, living here and, uh, you know, being of whatever service I can be to the community here. So currently I teach undergraduate students at the Ashram College. And uh, my focus is on the social and political philosophy of Sri Aurobindo and also on Indian culture, art, and philosophy. 
So that's what I'm mostly involved with. Uh, I also, as you rightly mentioned, I have a deep interest, uh, which we'll talk about later, I suppose, uh, uh, about India cultural and spiritual links between India and China. And that's a work that I've been doing on the side for a while. Uh, and um, yes, it's wonderful to be in Pondicherry and in this space. And um, uh, it's a place of, of growth and uh, of exploration, both within and without. Excellent. Um, so uh, let me start with um, something that very interesting uh, that I saw um, that you had posted on your timeline and Facebook. Um, you wrote a, a chapter for Gautam Chikarmane's in his book, in his, in his book on nationalism. And the chapter was on nationalism. Yes. Uh, yes. And Gautam is uh, affiliated to the ORF, the Observer Research Foundation. Yes. Uh, would you like to uh, talk to us about this, your chapter in his book and about yes. his book in general? Yes. So the book is called India 2030. And Gautam invited uh, 20 authors to contribute a chapter each on different aspects of uh, India. And he basically wanted us to give predictions. And I was, I was telling Gautam that that's, it's a very embarrassing thing to do, you know, to look ahead 10 years and then write about what you think is going to play out. Uh, because, you know, once it's uh, ink on paper, <laughs> you always have that, uh, uh, what shall I say, the, the, the weight of those predictions on you. Anyway, so uh, my topic was somewhat abstract or metaphysical. He asked me to write on nationalism. And uh, uh, I thought this was a really interesting topic. I was hesitant at first because it's, you know, it's a term with uh, so much of, uh, uh, around which there is so much heated debate. Yes. And yet I felt that it was really important because, so Sherbindo was one of the initiators, if not the initiator of the nationalist movement in India. And he was the heart and soul of the first, uh, you know, organized uh, freedom movement in Bengal, which took place, it started around 1905. And for five years, he was very actively involved in that movement. And he also edited um, a, um, a journal uh, called Bande Matram, which uh, published some of his very, very fiery writings, uh, which were trying to kind of wake people up to the reality of a new India, an independent India, a free India. And so he, he writes extensively uh, on nationalism and around independence and the freedom struggle. And so I felt it was important that there is this perspective which is brought in. So the chapter is basically a, a sort of meditation on nationalism and on how it originates as an idea, both in the West as well as in modern India. And then it moves ahead to what I feel are some of the various forces that are vying for nationalism in India, right? So we have, if you think about it today, you have those who believe that India's national identity should be uh, secular in the way that it was defined in the constitution. There are some who feel that, who interpret that secularism as a kind of almost an 
a religious kind of identity where you don't want to uh, talk about religion or or explore religion deeply because you're concerned about you know this delicate balance between religions that exists in india and then the, on the other hand you have some people who believe that there should be a much more uh, profound engagement with hinduism because that's the, the you know the majority of the country is hindu and india is the land uh, of uh, the birth and the, the the progressive exploration of the various strands within hinduism and then you have the fringes on both sides it's a it's a real you know it's a real confusion in a certain sense and what i felt was that shravindo offers us a perspective which is very important which is both rooted in india's past but which is forward it's progressive it's forward looking it's not it's not a perspective which simply seeks to uh, harp on the past and present that as the alternative for the future it's rooted in the past and what i mean by that is that it's rooted in this vision that comes down to us in our most important texts like the vedas and the upanishads and it says it has to build on that because that vision is rooted in this question of identity which is what nationalism is about essentially nationalism deals with identity who are we as a people who are we as a nation and the upanishads for example uh, are all about identity they are constantly asking ourselves the question uh, you know who are we fundamentally and the answer that they propose is something that transcends any limited personality that we may have not the body not the life force not the mind but something within something greater something deeper and when they seek to define it they say that it cannot be defined because it's infinite it has many forms it has many manifestations and so this idea of identity is interesting because it is rooted in a vision which is unitarian as well as uh, you know multiform in its expression so it's an identity which says that it is one and yet many it is it is uh, uh, united and yet capable of supporting an infinite diversity of expression of belief of faith and so it's interesting that india was is kind of the home of this experiment of identity and this whole conundrum of nationalism i feel is an extension of that same quest so in many ways what i'm trying to say is that indian nationalism uh, in a way has the key to success because if we can hark back to that vision of being united within then it can support an endless diversity uh, and expression uh, without and uh, that's the vision that i kind of put forth in um, the chapter that i i write and i am optimistic uh, i i say there that in spite of the the various struggles and the confusions that are going on i'm optimistic that as long as india remains faithful to its roots we will move towards a national identity that is not homogeneous because that's the danger of nationalism that it can it can create a homogeneous identity which says you have to believe in this you have to act like this you have to conform to a certain standard which somebody sets up and that is not india's story i strongly feel that india's uh, raison d'etre is to present to the world a model 
where you can feel strongly identified with the with the nation spirit you can feel proud to be indian and you can accept and a, a tremendous diversity such that you don't see anywhere else in the world fantastic um so devdeep let me ask you before we go into the other uh, um subject on on the upanishads yes. and taoism yes um yes you know like you said nationalism is a very loaded uh, term <laughs> and there's a lot yes. of vitriolic debate and the country is completely polarized where you know in some circles it's kind of a kiss of death to to be known as a nationalist mm-hmm. now and there is the common uh, common conception or misconception however you want to see it that you know nationalists are and the and the people who support modi and the bjp and the people who voted for this party are mm-hmm. exclusivist majoritarian and uh they wish to uh kind of uh flatten the pluralism of india into a monolithic sort of co- you know construct and where minorities voices are being stifled and so on and so forth i mean it's a, you know i mean mm. these things are recycled every new cycle so what are your thoughts on this i mean hmm. yeah yeah because yeah that's what everybody talks about all the time you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i th- i think what's interesting to do vikram is to um look at a little how the idea of nationalism evolves in modern times so straight away you know we we uh, you know as somebody who's really interested in history i i'm quite fascinated by how ideas develop and how people engage with these ideas and how they change from century to century so uh, before i before i come straight to your question because it's related if you see how the idea develops it's very interesting so in modern times the birth of nationalism in a certain sense takes place in france and so you have the french revolution uh, which which happens in 1789 that's the the year in which you know massive changes uh, take place the monarchy is abolished in france people rise up against it and the monarchical system was kind of the de facto system around the world for centuries why that happens in france is also interesting so there are of course various uh, causes which are given historically like you have the drought for a few years you have fiscal deficit of the french monarchy you have uh, the stories of how there was not enough food to go around but really speaking these are i like to make this distinction in my classes when i teach i say look there's there are two kinds of history there is history with the big h and there is history with the small h the small h history is all these things the little events that that take place and that kind of trigger like for example the first world war was triggered by the assassination of archduke ferdinand yes but that's the small that's the small age history yeah. the big histories are the forces which were leading to that moment and so in the french revolution you have you know voltaire and rousseau and these french philosophers who are exploring a radical new idea which puts the individual at the center you know front and center of this new 
political world. And they were writing some 30, 40, 50 years before the French Revolution actually takes place. And so what's interesting is that those ideas are seeding, they're germinating. And of course, it, it precedes them even. I'm just mentioning them because they, they became popular writers of the time. But for centuries, you would have this notion coming slowly to the front of the individual, the importance of the individual in, in society. And so the French Revolution happens. And it's a, it's a cascading effect because country after country, uh, uh, initially it, it's resisted, right? Uh, it leads to chaos. And then you have Napoleon who kind of comes and stabilizes the gains of the French Revolution, even though he crowns himself emperor. And in a sense, it looks as if he's rewinding the clock, but he isn't. He's actually stabilizing the gains of the French Revolution. He plays a crucial role. And then uh, inadvertently, one could say that he uh, lights this fire of nationalism in countries around Europe, like in Germany, for example, and uh, wherever he goes with his army. And so after Napoleon, so right through the 1800s, countries of Europe are forming uh, their national identities. And one of the last countries to, to, ha to, to have this cohesive national identity is Germany. And so under under Bismarck and Kaiser Wilhelm II, uh, Germany arrives on the stage of nationalism late, right? And while this is happening in Europe, outside of Europe, what these European powers are doing, of course, we know is their colonial rule, the expansion of the colonial empire. So it's kind of ironic that they are fighting for their individual freedoms within their home states, but outside of it, they are also subjugating other peoples in Asia and Africa. And so Germany comes on the stage and it uses this principle of nationalism, this newfound belief in German identity as a sort of, you know, uh, as a sort of um, uh, vehicle on which to promote its own sort of national agenda, which is fine, except when it starts to get mixed up with various things. So, so what, what I'm trying to say is that you have the First World War. The First World War, uh, of course, has complex causes, but one of those causes is Germany wanting a bigger share of the pie because it feels that it has been deprived. It feels that England and France have got much more established colonies and that Germany now is an equal power and it deserves as much as they have in the world. And that kind of leads to conflicts within their colonies and eventually in Europe, you have the First World War. Now, there is some, there's an interesting um, idea I want to bring in here. So Shrobindo has a book called The Human Cycle. It's a fascinating text, it's not very big but it's one of his most important books on social and political philosophy. And there he speaks of how humanity progresses historically through five stages. We, we're not gonna go into that because we don't have, you know, it's beyond the scope of our limited time that we have. But one thing he mentions is that you have the individualistic age, which is the fourth, the fourth one out of his five stages. And the individualistic age is when people start questioning conventions of the previous age and they establish reason and rationality and modern ideals uh, at the center of everything. And then he says the last stage is what he calls the subjective age. And this is really interesting because what is the definition of the subjective age? It is an age in which 
people hark back to their true identities but not immediately because there is a seeking for true identity and that seeking can lead you in many different directions it can even lead you to false identities what shobindo calls false subjectivism and so what happens in germany between the first world war and the second world war is basically a seeking for identity that ends up with a very dangerous consequence so we all know what happened with germany in the second world war you had hitler and you had his you know crazy theories about racial superiority and his justifications for it and um uh, but all of that is linked to germany trying to seek its identity so the, that nationalism that manifested itself in germany was a profoundly false seeking for identity and because because it pitted itself against other identities and said i will dominate you i will subjugate you you will be under me and that is not a true seeking of the self it's an assertion of the ego in indian mythology you would immediately say oh my god that's asuric that's a that's an asuric movement when you say that i affirm myself at the cost of others that's an egoistic movement and so nationalism becomes associated in the mid uh, 20th century with movements in germany with fascism in italy with these dictatorial uh, you know autocratic countries and unfortunately india gets its independence in 1947 when all these ideas are on the world stage and everyone thinks nationalism is a bad word right so people they now feel that oh my god look what nationalism did to us it got us into a second world war it created nazi germany it created fascist italy it's an idea which is dangerous and so india uh, is born into freedom at a time when people are almost afraid to explore the idea of nationalism or identity because it's it it has it can have dangerous consequences and so the the approach and of course not to forget there was the whole story of pakistan which is again a story of identity it's again a story of whether religious religious identity trumps over a cultural and a living identity that is hundreds of years old you know which is which which is which goes above and beyond this religious identity and so you have this situation where um 1947 india is a free country but now what is our identity who are we as indians and so we have we 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 establish a certain secular notion of what it means to be indian which is fine because we are i believe we are fundamentally secular i mean not because of the constitution but simply because of if you go back in the past if you go back to the vedas and the upanishads that that approach is is holistically secular in the sense that it supports an infinite variety of expression and pursuit of uh, you know religion and so you don't need a constitution to make you secular but the fear right from the beginning and this is my reading of it is don't bring in hinduism into the picture don't bring in a deeper um seeking of india's ancient past because we don't want uh, we don't want a nationalism which is messy or dangerous 
And I think that was a mistake because what you have is 30, 40 years of kind of not wanting to engage with ancient India, with India's heritage, with India's spiritual and cultural past in a meaningful way. It's not as if it was not done at all, but it was not something that was actively promoted or you know, put, for, put forth by the government. And so what I think happens is that there is a violent reaction to that. Starting in the 80s and 90s, there is a reaction which says, why aren't we talking more about who we are as a people, our religion, our past? Why is it that we are so afraid of this identity that we don't want to discuss it or we want to, we want to kind of whitewash it with a, with a modern notion of secularism? Whereas in India, as I just mentioned, I think that it was already there much before you had modern secularism. And much of what we see today, I feel, is a reaction to that uh, un, un, uh, artificial uh, suppression of seeking for identity. So, so what you have today is a very active resurgence of uh, engaging with the past in its various forms and aspects. And some of it will be regressive, for sure. You will have elements which will think about the past and say, oh, we, have, we need to bring back the forms of the past as if it's even possible. We need to bring back the, the, the conventions of the past. And that movement, if you look at Indian history, it happens time and again. It never succeeds because it doesn't answer to the spirit of the time, right? But the answer, the, the solution is not to say, no, we should not engage with the past. The, the solution is to say, how do we engage with it meaningfully and profoundly and deeply? Okay. So what I feel is much of the confusion that is happening today around topics of nationalism and identity is, is because on one hand, we are looking at it very superficially, artificially and saying, no, 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 we, we need to stick to constitutional secularism, which of course we should. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but uh, but if you just think of it in those terms and you do not acknowledge the profound importance that spirituality has played in India's past, then uh, do not be surprised when you have that opposite reaction, which violently says, you, why can't we uh, have a more, um, you know, uh, explicit uh, expression of our religious and cultural identity. And so we have these two forces which are kind of pitted against each other. And I find both both uh, forms of fanaticism, honestly. So even, even this, this sort of excessive, I mean, liberalism is a kind of fanaticism. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the interesting thing Wokeness, is that- right? The folk ideology. Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, but the interesting thing is that if you look at the Hindu tradition, if you look at the Upanishads, you look at the, the, the various philosophical texts, you are in Kashmir, Vikram. If you look at the story of Kashmir itself and the history of Kashmir itself, it is more liberal than any modern liberalism in the way that we are. It's, it, let me rephrase that. It's, it is liberal in the true sense of the word, right? Because it's a, a, a worldview which says, uh, which puts forth its, its vision. It says, look, this is what I believe in. This is what I'm trying to experience and express, but I'm fine if you have another way of doing it. 
whereas much of this sort of excessive modern liberalism seems to be don't discuss it don't talk about it uh, the moment you do you are branded as being you know you uh, you are you are right wing or you are re- religious or you are but india is religious i mean it's a culture which is religious in the true sense I mean, right completely yeah it's, it's profoundly spiritual and religious that's yeah. its story if you if you erase that story what remains and if you erase that story or you choose to ignore it in some way then you know uh, you don't have much credibility as a thinker or a writer or a commentator or an intellectual you know because it's like you have this mammoth elephant in the room which you refuse to look at you know or you try to brush it under the carpet not possible like you said india yes. is a profoundly yes. religious and spiritual uh, country yes and uh, yes yes uh, and this is where most people falter and this is what they don't see you know that this yes. is a driving yes. force this is why people are attracted yes. to uh, you know the bjp and uh, mr modi is because yes. he represents that at whatever level that primal yes. urge yes. to connect with yes. our roots you know yes have been yes. yes and it's like i mean it's so obvious uh, to see that and the, what what is the other side offering you know they're offering exactly. warmed over european ideas from the yes. last 200 yes. years exactly okay you know we can appreciate yeah. some of those ideas but hey we have like 5000 years you know and there are whole departments yeah. set up in major universities around the world to study those traditions whereas in india it's like a fringe activity almost you know what i mean yes yes <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's a very peculiar situation it's very <laughs> peculiar see see the 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 contribution of europe is not being undermined you know so when you have liberty and equality and fraternity as principles they are very important social and political principles that we accept and yeah. even as as modern india accepts these principles and yeah. we enshrine them in our constitution yeah. it is not and they are in no way in conflict with our own religious or spiritual beliefs right but what as you rightly say what is happening is that by the rigid insistence of not wanting to engage deeply with india's own traditions you are only uh, giving more space to uh, you know uh, to fringes with say uh, uh, which react with as much as much violence because it's a psychological violence when you deny somebody the the legitimacy to connect with their roots you cannot but expect a reaction and and that is what is playing out in different ways exactly see yeah. i i have a deep interest in indian art um it's it's really something that resonates with me very much uh, as you know we have traveled yeah. together and seen these great temples of the south um so, so i mean i see on facebook sometimes you know i i follow some groups where people post uh pictures or uh, which are related to indian art yeah. and then you have nowadays for example some really weird posts like things like uh oh this temple was built in 6000 bc <laughs> or some you know some nonsense like that uh with a with a photograph of what is clearly a you know vijayanagara period sculpture or yeah. a chola period sculpture or a pallava period sculpture because you can recognize those things and the thing is that 
if 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 we don't have a mature conversation about our culture and if we cannot proudly engage with it then it's only these fringes which are playing out these mad things on the side you know 6000 bc temple or whatever else and on the other hand the this excessive uh, liberal wokeness and they are that, that the noise that you see on twitter or anywhere else is very often this conflict and there are so many people i feel who are quietly um, engaging with india and its traditions at a deeper level and one thing which i write in in gautam's book in my essay for gautam's book is that i feel that in the next 10 years these voices will come out more and more uh, it will become harder and harder for uh, the western press for example to ignore that you know there there, there are profound truths that uh, that 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 engaging with these profound truths does not mean you're bigoted or that you're religious in the way that they engage with religion in the west because the moment you say religion in the western context it's the church and the and the horrors of the medieval ages and all that whereas as as we just mentioned uh, india without its religion and its culture and its spirituality is nothing it doesn't exist there is no india without it yeah very interesting yes but, but vikram you have lived in the west also so you must have a different interesting perspective on on this on uh, on how the west sees this i mean i don't know whether you would like to share a little bit of your own uh, perception on this sure uh devdeep the west is not a monolith number one just like india there's a yes. diversity of yes. viewpoints and uh what is perceived as the west quote unquote in india is this commentariat you know of the mm. certain a group of academics from certain universities and then you have the new york times and the washington post mm. and the bbc and mm. this cabal so this is what yes. people see as the west you know but in reality uh if you talk to mainstream americans you know they're very curious and they are very uh, almost uh, very enchanted you know with indian spirituality and mysticism and uh, meditation and yoga are very mainstream in the west in the united states people are genuinely fascinated by these traditions and let me tell you that um the average american joe you know the working class american disregards i mean has very little knowledge or interest in the dominant mm. narrative that's been churned out by these handful mm. of media outlets which are actually political entities you know mm. there's, mm. there's 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 less journalism and more an agenda to, yes. for, for american yes. geopolitical yes. american geopolitical agenda that they are forwarding um and also these academics from these universities who study indology who are forwarding this narrative and who support uh, you know uh, these uh, forces um, that are uh, anti religion or materialist or uh, freudian kind of view of of hindu philosophy uh, nobody i mean these people have very little influence first of all on uh, on the on the public opinion yeah 
uh, if you talk to the average person who is doing yoga or who's into the Upanishads or, you know, they may have never even heard of these scholars and these Indologists yes. who are so prominent, uh, you know, and who we think are the West. Yes. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, in right, reality, right, right. lineages, these traditions, Buddhist, Hindu, that are mushrooming all over North America, they are wildly popular. They are getting more mm. popular by the day. And uh, Americans are genuinely fed up of materialist, you know, short-sighted yes. and myopic kind of Western mm. consumerist ideology. Mm. So, so, so mm. this, and they mm. turn to this and they see the truth of it. They practice it. They mm. come. So it's like, you know, um, 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 so yeah, we are, don't be, you know, don't think for a moment that this spectrum uh, right. ideology right. is, is, yes. even in America, look, look, the New York Times, man, people, they, they kind of laugh at it because even Americans are like, these guys are so, the spectrum that they cater to <laughs> is so narrow. Mm. It represents hardly, you know, a small uh, spectrum mm. of American, you know, opinion mm. or thinking or they're so disconnected, just like we yes. talk about Indian elites and how disconnected they are. It's the same thing in the West, you know, it's like, who the hell reads that stuff? They don't even read that stuff. They don't know what they're talking about, nor are they interested. Right. You know, they're running yes. their business. They're trying to do their own thing. They've got, so, so don't, you know, you have Twitter and social media. Mm. Where you think, this is it. You know, this is the be all and end all. It's not, it's not. Okay. Let's be very frank. So, um, so yeah, I've, uh, yeah, coming from, I'm, you know, I've lived there for, for a big chunk of my life and, uh, so yeah, I can read this stuff and I'm not impressed, nor am I intimidated by uh, mm. the New York Times mm. or some Indologist who's at UC Berkeley or at mm. Columbia School of Journalism or whatever, you know, mm. <laughs> because, mm. because the average American couldn't care less. Okay. Let's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, look at Biden, yeah. Biden, he mm. barely scraped through the election mm. you know what i mean mm. barely I mm. little. trump got over 70 million votes in the last election mm. so even mm. biden is mm. a laughing stock and his foreign mm. policy so, so it's like he doesn't represent any great departure from mm. from uh, mm. from his predecessors mm. so everyone can see through it no what, what i uh, what, what i feel uh, vikram is that you know, you, you, you asked me about the, the political sort of currents of the present moment. What, what I really feel is that it's urgent need for us, for those of us who are interested in India, who love India, who live in India, I mean, not necessarily live in India, but who are concerned with the future of India. There's a lot of real work to be done. And uh, uh, we we have to start now because we don't have any excuses anymore. We have been independent for 75 years. We can't keep saying British occupation of India or invasions of India. Yes, all that was there. All that was a reality. It happened. We lost uh, a lot of things uh, from, uh, you know, that, that, that existed in the past. But now we don't have excuses anymore. I think there is very real solid work to be done. We have to engage 
more profoundly with the traditions in the real way. And what I mean by the real way is to try and see what they were trying to say rather than trying to think about practices, to try and go to the philosophical depths of those systems. I, I heard you know, this um, very interesting session that you had with uh, Subhashji, Subhash Kak. And, um, you know, when, and I also have an interest in Kashmiri Shaivism. And I was reading some texts from Kashmiri Shaivism. I mean, such profound psychological insights. And the world, I mean, except for those who are interested in these fields, you know, a limited number of people who are interested in Indology or philosophy. But, but imagine if uh, there was more uh, uh, knowledge and awareness and engagement with these traditions, that would be doing justice to them. So that's what I think really, uh, what I end with in my chapter uh, in Gautam's book is I, I am really hopeful that in the coming decade, that engagement will happen. And it will not just be for academics or scholars, but it will be at the level of, it will come out in the form of, of uh, books and movies and uh, various forms of content uh, that people, you know, uh, go into the classical arts and dance. And I think it's already happening. Uh, people are seeking, uh, but as you rightly said, it's not something that you can see in the mainstream media or on Twitter, but it's happening. When you, when you see people to people, you hear uh, uh, anecdotal uh, evidence, when you uh, connect with people uh, at, uh, on social media, you definitely see that a lot of people are looking for something uh, within the tradition and keeping it relevant for modern times as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, Devdeep, would you like to talk about your work um, and your comparative, um, you know, in, in comparative religion, I would call it, where you study the parallels between Upanishadic thought and mm -hmm. uh, even um, Sri Aurobindo's philosophy and certain strands in um, Chinese mm -hmm. religious thought? So just to put it broadly, and then you can specify. Yes. Yes. Uh, so let me tell you how this whole thing started, because yeah. uh, it, it, it was an interesting journey for me personally. Yeah. Um, so growing up, I have to say that I did not have much knowledge about uh, China, both as a country, as a culture, its history. We didn't really study it much. To be, I'm being perfectly honest. What uh, remained with me uh, mostly was you know, 1962 war or uh, the invasion of Tibet. And uh, so the, it was mostly in a geopolitical sense that we kind of understood China, even, you know, even as uh, young adults going through college. But at the same time, I was, um, I was interested in East Asian philosophy. So, and I was also interested in how Indian thought Indian monks traveled through the East Asian region, uh, settling there, establishing uh, various schools of philosophy. And so that was, that was also there somewhere as an underlying interest. Now, the, these things kind of came together when I heard about a Chinese gentleman who lived in the ashram for 27 years in Bondicherry. And so uh, how, how that happened is, uh, there was a visitor we had from China who was visiting the ashram and he was a young man my age. And uh, I was very curious about this 
person in the sense of he he had read shrobindo's magnum opus you know his major philosophical text called the life divine he had read it in chinese and i didn't even know there was a chinese translation so and i i was really curious to know who's done this translation who is this person so when i met this young gentleman we started talking and we had some very interesting conversations he he's the same age as i am and so i wanted to know his story how how was it growing up and i started to uh, you know to kind of understand uh china as a country as a culture and he was somebody who had a very philosophical bent of mind so we had some very interesting discussions and so through him i came to know i mean i had heard earlier about this person but i realized how important the work he had done so this gentleman's name uh, the one who lived in the ashram for 27 years from 1950 uh i think 1950 51 to 76 I I forget the exact dates now but it's yeah 51 to 78 yeah 51 to 78 and uh, his name was we used to in the ashram he's known as hu shu uh in china in china, china he's known as shu fancheng shu fancheng was a uh, chinese he was born interestingly he was born in the same you know city uh, where mao zedong comes from and there's an interesting coincidence that when he was a young kid uh, mao zedong was his geography teacher but that's just a coincidence there is no there's no other relation to uh, mao or mao's thought later on he came under the influence of one of the uh, sort of uh, fathers of modern chinese literature one of the founders of modern chinese literature whose name is lu shun so shu fancheng came under the influence of lu shun as a as a young adult so he came who uh, shu uh, himself was from a you know well to do family he went to germany to heidelberg to study history of uh, of european art and philosophy and all and then when he came back to china he translated uh, nietzsche's write some of nietzsche's books into chinese that was his first translation and then to cut a long story short he he had his he, the you know china went through a difficult period in the 1930s with the invasion of japan and the second world war eventually hu shu found himself in 1945 in shantiniketan so he got a scholarship from the chinese government to come to china bhavan which had been established uh, in shantiniketan by another well known chinese uh, figure called tan yunshan Tan Yunshan is well known in in India among you know the study of Sino-Indian relations. So Tan Yunshan set up the China Bhavan, and he had a number of uh, scholars uh, coming to Shantiniketan. And this was the time of the Pan-Asian movement, right? Tagore, Tan Yunshan, they really believed in the renaissance of Asia as a civil as a as a civiliz- civilizational renaissance uh, and a cultural renaissance. And so. uh he stayed in shantiniketan for some 5 years and he also learned sanskrit when he was in india he went to varan hushu went to varanasi he picked up sanskrit he translated kalidasa play of kalidasa from sanskrit to chinese and then in 1951 he comes to pondicherry now why does he come to pondicherry there is some speculation that he would have heard about sri aurobindo from tanyun shan because tanyun shan had visited pondicherry earlier he had had the darshan of shri aurobindo he had met the mother 
and he had had some very interesting conversations with the mother. This is Tan Yun Shan, the one who founded the China Bhavan in Shantiniketan. And where he says something to the effect that he really believes that Shrobindo's philosophy and his thought have a very important role to play in China. So through that connection, it is very likely that Hushu would have heard about the ashram. So he comes here in 1951. And then from 51 to 78, the 27 years that he's here, he undertakes a massive translation project. He translates most of Shrobindo's major works into Chinese. He translates 50 of the Upanishads from Sanskrit to Chinese. He translates um, the Bhagavad Gita into Chinese. And uh, the mother, that is Shrobindo's spiritual associate in Pondicherry, Mira Alfasa, whom we refer to as the mother, she uh, gives him a lot of support uh, financially, uh, you know, morally in the sense of encouraging him to do the work that he was doing. She organizes, she, because Hushu did not have resources. He, when he came to Pondicherry, he came with very little, but the mother gave him a very beautiful house to stay in on the beach road. She purchased a printer through a devotee in Hong Kong and got it shipped you know, because there was no Chinese printing press yeah, in India. Yeah, yeah. So, so she purchased that printer. Yeah. She hired a salaried assistant and all of that to give him whatever he needed to do this work. And when I was listening to all this, when I got to know about all this and I did some research into his life, because he was quite a forgotten figure, even in Pondicherry, when, you know, when I, this is around 2009 or 10 that, that we started looking up little facts about his life. There were a few of us who were interested, some friends of mine in Oroville. And we were doing this together. And so we found it really interesting that, oh my God, the mother clearly saw some purpose to support him in such a way. And so he was, imagine he was doing these translations. He was printing these books, right? In his big house with the, with the Chinese printer, uh, with the printing press from Hong Kong. And there's nobody to buy them. There's nobody to read them because there's no way that, uh, you know, communist China would allow the sale of these books at that point of time, right? Translate, translations of spiritual religious texts were not possible to be sold in China in the 1950s and 60s, the time of the Cultural Revolution and all that. Uh, but he's, he's still continuing to do his work quietly. He's, he's preparing you know, this massive body of knowledge. And so in 1978, uh, with Mao gone and China opening up, uh, and here in Pondicherry, the mother has left her body. And he, and he feels that, you know, he has to finish this work. And so he goes back to China. And in China, some of his old classmates from Heidelberg are in Beijing and they are in, in fairly reputable positions. Fortunately that, you know, fortunately for Hushu that he was in India during this very turbulent period of Chinese history, right? 60s and 70s. Scholars like him were targeted in China, but he escaped all that. So he goes back to China, he settles in Beijing and he joins a department in uh, the uh, School of Social Sciences there in Beijing. And his books start to get known. Uh, they start to get published, republished. Uh, he has students who come to meet him and who are interested in Indian thought. And he becomes known as one of the foremost Indologists in China. And what he does is very interesting. 
China is familiar with Indian thought and philosophy, yeah. very yeah. familiar. Yeah. But the prism is Buddhism. Correct. It's entirely focused on Buddhism. And what Hushu did was he carries back with him to China translations of pre-Buddhist texts like the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita. And post-Buddhist in the sense that, you know, the writings of Shirobindu. So he, he, he brings in a sense modern Indian philosophy, spiritual philosophy and ancient Indian spiritual philosophy which is pre and post Buddhist. And so he becomes a figure which is who is very important in the intellectual circles of Indology in China, even influential, I would say. And he triggers an interest, a renewed interest uh, to engage with India uh, outside the prism of Buddhism. So I got really interested in, in the story of this person. And then with, with my friend who had visited the ashram and through whom I got to know more about uh, Chinese philosophy and Hushu, uh, I had the occasion to travel in China and um, uh, visit uh, you know, not Hushu because he had passed. He had, you know, he had passed away in 2001. Right. But I visited some of his colleagues, and it was an interesting experience for me to go a bit deeper into the 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 study also of Chinese philosophy. So now coming to your question of late, so I have been also. Uh, reading some texts in translation because though I'm I'm learning Mandarin, but it's still I'm still at a very basic level. I'm not able to read, uh, you know, the texts in the original Mandarin. But uh, I have been reading um, the Tao Te Ching and uh, Zhuangzi and a few other philosophers, wow. and I find and I find some very interesting um, insights uh, which uh, have some parallels in Indian philosophy as well. And uh, I'm curious to see what kind of interactions there may have been between India and China outside of Buddhism. Uh, uh, and uh, so I'm currently working on a paper which is a comparative reading of uh, a few of the Upanishadic texts and the Tao Te Ching. It's not really fair to compare the whole body of the Upanishads with the Tao Te Ching because the Tao Te Ching is a singular text. Whereas the Upanishads is a, is a complete body of work. There are many Upanishads with many different uh, authors. I mean, they're not technically authors in the way, in the tradition, in the Indian tradition, it's Shruti, they're revealed knowledge. But whatever, they are ascribed to various rishis. So it's, but, but there are some ideas which can be meaningfully compared. And that's what I'm working on at the moment. And I hope to uh, have it ready by uh, the end of this year. Very nice, very nice. So, um, because, you know, the Tao Te Ching, uh, people have a somewhat vague uh, notion about it, where, uh, you know, most people think it's some sort of a divining tool, yeah, where mm -hmm. you can use it to peer into the future and to tell your mm -hmm. fortune. And that's whether it's, uh, uh, I mean, how true that is, I don't know. But this is what, and it's in new age circles, this is how it's marketed mm. uh, in mm. the West and maybe in India. Um, so I was naturally interested because I'm very intimate with the Upanishads. And mm. uh, that's coming from a whole different angle, you know? I mean, that's... Yeah, uh, yeah uh, for sure. It's not some yeah. tarot card, whatever thing, you know? So it's... Yeah. So... 
I'm curious to know as to what you found. If you could go a little bit. See, yeah. yeah, so the, the, there's another text uh, called the I Ching, which is uh, used a lot for this kind of divining. Uh, yes, and the I Ching, the I, sorry. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so the I Ching is a, is, a, is a text which is dated to be older than the Tao Te Ching. Yeah. But this is still very interesting. You bring up something very interesting. And I, uh, you, you'll excuse me if I go back to the human cycle very briefly. Yeah. So the first stage of the human cycle, Shurabindu calls the symbolic age. Okay. And he says that the symbolic age is a time when early societies, not just in India, but around the world, uh-huh. were um, exploring profound understanding of the cosmos and the world and the place of people in it. And you had small circles of people, groups of people. In India, we call them rishis, right? Who were on this, who, 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 who were exploring these truths and these ideas and expressing them in the form of symbols. So he calls it the symbolic age. And these symbols were, um, uh, why symbols? Because to those who were initiated, to those who were ready for a deeper understanding, these symbols had meaning. For the majority of people who were not yet uh, who were still living at a very gross physical level, these symbols were interpreted in a much more mundane manner. And that was fine. It was, it was, it was good uh, for them at that stage to be engaged in ritual and ceremony because even through these means, there was a contact, a kind of attempt to establish some deeper relation with something higher. But for those who knew, the, those who had the esoteric knowledge of what was behind the symbols, they understood that profound spiritual truths were being revealed. So Shurabindo's entire commentary on the Vedas is actually based on this principle that the Vedas have a double meaning. He says they have an esoteric meaning and an exoteric meaning. And so what is interesting is that India is one of the few civilizations which has retained a a living continuity of these texts. So thanks to the Upanishads, we still know yeah. about the fact that the Vedas had an esoteric meaning yeah. and the Upanishads are explicitly say that, yeah. you know, we, we draw from the, the knowledge of the Vedas. But in other traditions, it's lost. So I, I am, since you mentioned the I Ching, it's on my mind, but I have not gone into it okay. and I'm not in a yeah. position to say anything. But I'll just say this much, that the Texts like the I Ching seem to me to be remnants of a similar tradition. Okay. But without the help of uh, successive, you know, uh, keys to really understand it fully. Okay. So it's very likely that the Chinese would have had uh, an age similar to the Vedic age in India, but we don't know much about it because it's lost in time. I see. Thanks for listening to the Big Turtle Podcast. You can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time.